The demons know it as well. Knowing doctrine is good, but knowing doctrine alone does not equal true and living faith. True faith also strives to live in a way that shows that you actually believe the doctrine that you say that you believe. The Word of God calls us to both know and to submit our lives to sound doctrine. And in chapter 2, Paul is commanding Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And as we go through chapter 2, you're going to be thinking, what doctrine is he teaching? Well, it is basically ethics, doctrinal ethics. And God wants us to understand these ethics based on who he is and who he has created us to be. And that is doctrine. And, and one doctrine, one ethic that should jump out to us in our culture and in our time, Martin Luther always said that to make sure to, to fight where the battle is the hottest, is that women and men are different. They have different roles. God has created them differently. He loves the way they complement each other, but women, men and women do not have the same roles. And that is one thing that Titus chapter 2 teaches us. Now in chapter 1, if you can remember, I can't remember last time I preached, it's been so long, but way back in chapter 1, uh, Paul instructed Titus to put in order those things that he had left unfinished. And one of those things was the appointing of leadership. The church needed order, they needed leadership, and they needed leadership because he was worried that, that somebody needed to guard the flock from these Cretan type of ethics that were infiltrating the church and contradicting sound doctrine. Well, in chapter 2, he's going to continue telling Titus to complete what he left unfinished, but now it's going to have more to do with the congregation. So the congregation and officers have different roles, but God still expects the same conduct and character out of all of God's people as he does church officers. If you look in your bulletins, my outlines can be funny sometimes, so I like to put them in the bulletins so that you can follow me. Uh, you can see there that I'm not dividing this up between men and women, but between old and young, and then the category of slaves is at the end. And I'm going to leave the passage that everybody loves and use that as my conclusion. So if you will, let's, let's look at Chattis. Titus chapter 2 together, verses 1 to 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opportunity may be put to shame, an opponent may be put to shame. 
having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now Paul begins by instructing Titus to teach sound doctrine to the older people in the church. And I want to start with a little side note. Uh, This isn't evident in the text, but I, I believe that Titus is probably a younger person. And it's because of verse 15 when he says, let no one disregard you. This sounds a lot like the counsel that he gives Timothy when he tells Timothy not to let anyone look down on him or despise him because he was young. So the point I'm trying to make here that I'm going all around the world to make is that older people don't have a corner on truth. And younger people, can't believe I'm saying this as the youth pastor, younger people can actually teach older people sometimes. My daughter's here, I can't let her hear that too much. Now, the first thing that jumps out at me in these instructions to the older people is that they are to be self-controlled. And for the woman, he adds the idea of being reverent in behavior. And the funny thing is that self-control is something that Paul is saying is to be taught to the younger people by the older people. In verses 5 and 6, Paul says, that the young women and the young men are to be self-controlled. And this is what I love about Paul's teaching. We might be tempted when we look at these, at these passages and we might think, well, if I am living by the grace of God, then I am supposed to have things like self-control 100% figured out. But Paul is here recognizing the reality of no matter what age you are, if you're young or old, you're going to struggle with self-control. And another beautiful thing is that he says graciously, you old people who still struggle with self-control, don't just struggle with your own self-control. Teach the younger people how to fight against their lack of self-control. Now, practical reason why I think older people probably have a better handle on self-control than young people, but don't have it perfectly figured out, Uh is because older people have experienced the problems of their lack of self-control more than younger people have. They, they know what it's like to, to go off in a, in a casual way and not be controlled and suffer the consequences for that. 
So older people have something to teach the younger people about self-control. Now Paul also says that the older men are to be sober-minded. Now sober-minded can be taken figuratively, and I do believe that's what Paul means here. But I also think he's, he's saying that the, the, uh, the literal meaning of this word is to be understood too. Because he also tells the older women to not be slaves to what? To not be slaves to much wine. So, so the first thing that hit me is, why would older people potentially be tempted to turn to drinking? Uh, the only thing I could come up with is, is, I believe it could be because of the influence of regret. Older people can be tempted to feel useless. They don't have much energy. Uh, they don't have as much zeal as younger people. And they also have a lifetime of failures to look back on that younger people don't quite have yet. They may begin to believe the lie that they don't matter and they no longer have any profitable use. Therefore, they may actually become withdrawn, become kind of recluse, and actually try to dull their senses with alcohol. And I kind of hear Paul screaming in the background of any older person that believes this lie saying, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Anyone who has the Spirit of Christ in them is necessary for the church and necessary for God's purposes. Old people might focus on what has weakened with age, but God sees all those weaknesses as opportunities for his glory. Think of Caleb. You guys remember Caleb? That's got to be somebody's favorite Old Testament Bible hero. The old guy who all the young people were over there shaking in their boots, and he's like, let's go in and let's conquer these Canaanites. He was ready. Think of Abraham and Sarah. In their old age, God produced a nation from them. And think about blessed Elizabeth. You guys remember Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist? This is the description that Luke gives us of Elizabeth. She was a barren and advanced in years. How'd you like to have that on your name tag? Barren and advanced in years. But God not only gave her in her old age the privilege of raising up the prophet John the Baptist, he also used her in a vital time in Mary, the mother of Jesus' life. When she was perplexed, she didn't know what was going on. She was, she was pregnant. Angels had appeared to her, and her husband might put her away, and she might live in, in shame for the rest of her life. And she goes and meets with Elizabeth, and she encourages her and sends her on her way. And because of that meeting with Elizabeth, we have the beautiful song in Luke chapter 2, Mary's Magnificat. I hope that no older person in this church is ever tempted to feel unnecessary. I don't know of any that do, but I hope that you don't because you are necessary for this church. This church needs fatherly and motherly influences. And by that I mean 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, and 50-year-olds need spiritual fathers and mothers. 
God loves the people, the older people in this church. And the last thing he wants from you is for you to think, it's time to retire. It's time to become idle. The devil would love for you to think that way because God wants to use you even if advanced in years is on your name tag. You may see your role transitioning into one less of action and more of support, more of encouragement, more of counsel. But the church has great need of those things. And Paul expects a healthy relationship to be cultivated between the older and younger generations in the church. And that is why he says the older women are to instruct the younger women at the end of verse 4. Older men and women are to be models of dignity, reverence, and self-control. But they can't do that from a distance. They have to get involved in the lives of the younger people in the church. They have to help them work through the difficulties of living a simple Christian life, raising a simple family, and following the ethics of God's word that are so opposed to what the world is teaching them. And that brings us to our second point, sound doctrine for the young. Beginning in verse 4, Paul says that the older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. This command right here makes the point that men and women are different. And men and women have different roles. Men can teach women. That's what I'm doing right now. There are several women in here, and I'm preaching to you. The preaching of the word is done by a man and is relevant whether we are male, female, no matter what our nationality, no matter our age. The preacher's lack of common experience doesn't diminish the teaching and preaching of the word, but there's only so much as a preacher that I can teach a woman because the obvious reason, I'm not a woman. I've never been a mother. I've never been a wife. I've never been a daughter. There's only so much common experience that I can teach to a woman. There are differences between men and women, and that is why Paul makes it clear that we need older women training the younger women. Ligon Duncan says, We ought to have an intentional, deliberate approach to female discipleship because men and women are different, and these differences need to be recognized, taken into account, and addressed in the course of Christian discipleship. And what is the specific area that Paul wants the older women to train the younger women in? He wants them to focus on the area of the home. We live in a time when women who center their life around husband, children, and home are considered unfulfilled, dissatisfied, and above all, to be pitied. One of my favorite country artists, I don't like country music that much, I really like this woman. I like her music, but I like her more than I like her music. It's Loretta Lynn. Uh, Loretta Lynn, she's from the Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky. She kind of reminds me of 
the women on my mom's side of the family because they grew up in the mountains. But Loretta Lynn, in 1975, wrote a song that glorified the newfound freedom that women had now because they have a birth control pill. And the song is actually just called The Pill. And if you know Loretta Lynn's songs, it's actually kind of funny. It's a funny song. Uh, She plays on the idea that her husband sees her as a hen that sits at home on the nest and on the eggs all day while he's out living his life crowing like a... She always liked to talk about her husband out crowing, been out crowing. That was one of her, one of her sayings. He crowing like a rooster. Uh, she refers to herself as an overused incubator. Pretty funny. Uh, she says that she's tearing down the brooder house. Who knows what a brooder house is besides Jeremy Luckadoo? He's the one that I had to... Okay, Dorian knows. Uh, he's the one I had to go to to make sure I had, and I probably still don't have this right, but it's basically an indoor place that's, that's designed to help facilitate and, and increase egg production. Uh, I think it has heating and maybe insulation. Am I wrong, Jeremy? It keeps the what alive? The babies, okay, okay. There you go. So Loretta Lynn's tearing this thing down. There's no more, no more egg production. The egg production is over. Now, in Loretta's defense, so I'm going to defend my hero Loretta Lynn a little bit. Her husband was an alcoholic. If you guys know her story. And he was physically abusive. He was emotionally abusive. He cheated on her all the time. And she stuck, they stuck together somehow. I mean, she wouldn't be who she was without him pushing her out of her shell. But he definitely was not a man who was putting loving his family and his wife first. He wasn't. So you can kind of understand some of her pushing back on his ways. And I believe that the abuse and looking down of women in past generations has helped create the feminist overcorrection that we have today. It seems like we always overcorrect. We We can't ever get in the middle and get balanced. It's always overcorrection. It was wrong for for Loretta Lynn to disdain her place as a mother and caregiver for her home. But it was equally, if not more heinous, for her her husband to just see her as a slave who sits at home, takes care of the home, while he's out living his life however he pleases. And because of the selfishness of sin, men and women struggle to live according to the sound doctrine of in God's design for them. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly telling us that family is like that millstone that Jesus talks about that's hung around your neck that's just keeping you from living your dreams. Women who focus on family and home and submit to their husbands and follow God's priorities for them are called things like Stepford Wives. They are women who robotically serve their families with no sense of self-fulfillment, no sense of self-worth. But the struggle between the biblical view and the world's view of women is not an issue of the value of women. It is an issue of what is seen as important and what is it that God values. The world believes that a simple life, raising children, being faithful to your husband is useless and boring. But God sees great value 
and a family that loves one another, a husband that sacrificially loves his wife, and a wife that sacrificially submits to her husband. The family is where God wants his future saints to be strengthened and nourished. And I think one of the things that that frustrates family life is the misconception that it is supposed to be easy and that the, the true faithful Christian immediately receives satisfaction and fulfillment from making family and home the center of their life. But that's not possible because we still live in a cursed world. Clark read that this morning from Genesis chapter 3. When the curse entered the world, the man was told that, that work, the means by which he provides for his family, would be difficult and would be non-productive. It will be painful. He'll labor by the sweat of his brow. It'll be stressful and, and frustrating. Men are tasked with working in, in physically and emotionally stressful conditions while having the responsibility of providing physical, emotional, and spiritual needs for his family. The woman was told that that bringing forth children would be painful and that she would be plagued with a, a desire to rule over her husband. Now we know that there is great blessing in family and marriage, but it is not constant bliss. And the reason it's not constant bliss is because it is requiring self-sacrifice. I believe this is why less people are getting married in our culture because marriage and family does not produce immediate fulfillment and immediate satisfaction. And don't we have a culture that wants the immediate? I remember when I was a teenager, I listened to all kinds of popular music, you know, country, heavy metal, rap. I mean, I was all over the place. And uh, if you listen to like a, a popular song, you know, like Backstreet Boys or something like that, the tunes are real easy and they come to you fast and you can like those songs quickly. But I decided that I, I, I was in band and had studied some music in school and so I was exposed to, to the classics. So I decided that I wanted to try to like Mozart and Beethoven and Chopin and people like that. And so I bought a a cassette tape. Kids, that's these things that were like this big, and they, I can't explain it. You put them in these things, and and you have to mash buttons to make them play, physical buttons, not, and so, and you can't skip to the song you want. You have to, you have to listen to the, or fast forward and hope you hit the right place. It, It was, it was terrible. But, uh, but I would listen to this song all, or this tape all the time of Mozart. And, and the songs don't even have names. It's like Concerto in B minor. And, you know, and so I couldn't tell you the name of any of the, of the songs. But, uh, but it took me time and it took me effort. And I actually started loving that music. Well, that's how it is with God's blessings. It takes time. It takes effort. The worldly stuff is immediate. So we're easily drawn to that. And so it becomes difficult for us when we approach marriage and family, and it's not immediate. But God will bless you in it if you take the time and you put forth the effort to invest in it. So young people, as you struggle through the difficulties 
of making your home and family a priority, don't give up. Don't listen to the world when they tell you that changing diapers is useless. Working a 60-hour-a-week job is useless. And it can be boring. That's true. Nurturing young kids, praying simple prayers with them, teaching them catechisms, those things are useless according to the world. These are the kind of simple tasks that the God of the universe has called you to. It might seem foolish and simple to the world, but it is vital to him. So be encouraged as you work in the mission field of family. And if you feel discouraged, and I know, be honest, I know some of you do, if you feel unsatisfied with this kind of life, there's a resource here that Paul's already mentioned, the older people. Tap into the older people. They have been right where you are. They know the struggles that you're having intimately. They have driven through the seemingly boring scenery of raising children and being married to the same person for several years. I made that sound terrible, didn't I? (laughs) Now, Paul has mentioned teaching sound doctrine to the old and young, but he mentions one more category in this passage, the slave, and that brings us to our third point. Paul says, beginning in verse 9, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Slavery is an ugly word in our culture and to our country, and in its historical context, it should be. I'm not going to take the time to make the argument, I've done this before, that, that racially... Uh, based slavery is not endorsed in the scriptures. But although we are living in a time when we are not slaves and slavery is illegal in our country, there are a lot of these Christians in Crete who found themselves in the situation of being slaves when Paul wrote this letter. And they had to deal with the truth that God allowed it and God wanted them to be faithful as they served him in it. And I believe that even though we are not slaves in the sense that these first century Christians were, we still have something to learn from them in their situation and their station in life. We are all given roles by God. The world may look down on that role, but as Christians, as Paul says in in chapter 1, we are all slaves of God for the faith of his elect. God has, has called us to serve his elect. And whether we be slave or free, Wife or husband, single person, I haven't mentioned single people yet, but single people or a child, no matter where we are, I think we all have the temptation of this kind of mentality. The grass is greener over there. Not where God wants me, but the grass is greener over there where God doesn't have me right now. Husbands may be tempted to think that if I could be free from the burden of my family, I could live the way I want. I would be free and I could pursue the things that would satisfy me. I haven't mentioned uh, single people a whole lot because Paul doesn't mention them here, but I don't want to leave them out because Paul does mention them in 1 Corinthians 7. Single people might be tempted to think, if I could be married and have a family, that would fix all my problems. But Paul says God has purposes for you in your singleness. So accept it where you are right now. 
And wives may be tempted to imagine a life where they could focus all their time on their career or maybe some adventure or something like that. And children might be tempted to think, if I had the freedom of an adult, my life would be better, right? Adults know that is definitely a lie. Children, you have more freedom now than you will when you're an adult. So, But God has purposes in all these stations in life. And because of the curse, we might not, not always find contentment and satisfaction in them, but God intends to bless you and minister to the elect as you are faithful where you are, where God has you right now. Now, conclusion. Kind of a long conclusion, but the conclusion. I'm going to take verses 11 and 14 and use them as the conclusion. So when you read verses 1 through 10, you hear the commands, uh, the ethics that we should live by, things like be self-controlled, be submissive, be pure, be sober-minded. But where do these commands get us if we only repeat them to each other and repeat them to ourselves? Like, do it, do it, do the command. You hear the command, be self-controlled. Who has self-control perfectly figured out? No, put my hand down, sorry. (laughs) Well, when you hear that command, you say, I can't. So what do you do? You try harder? You, uh... You bear down harder? Is that the answer? Well, we all know that's not the gospel. And that's why Paul makes sure to connect this section of ethics and doctrine with the ethics and doctrine of the grace and mercy and power that's provided through Jesus Christ. Paul says, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Now these verses display beautiful sound doctrine that that should encourage us as we approach the first ten verses. Paul says the grace of God has appeared. How has the grace of God appeared? When has it appeared? It has appeared in the first coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that we are now waiting for him to appear again. He's coming back. He went to prepare a place for you and he's going to come back. And it should give us hope. As we live in this world, as we battle with our discontentment of where God has placed us, we have something wonderful to anticipate, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But while we're here waiting, while we're in the wilderness, while we're in the desert, God's grace has not abandoned us and left us completely powerless. Paul says his grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When you fail to be a good husband, a good wife, a good mentor or disciple, you don't tap into your own strength. 
You run to the grace that endlessly flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. You ask him to give you the power to not just do your role, but to start loving your role. Paul says salvation has appeared for all people, meaning God doesn't look down on anybody's role in life. He considers them all important. He doesn't care if you are a blue-collar worker, if you're a white-collar worker, if you're slave or free, a husband, a wife, a child, or if you're single. He wants to bring salvation to you where you are right now, and he wants you to be content and satisfied with the truth that he is working that salvation out for you in your present circumstances. You don't have to long for some other circumstances. Your best life may not be now. I feel like I'm always quoting Joel Osteen, the opposite of Joel Osteen. But God's grace is preparing your heart for your best life. And he's giving you grace for the simple circumstances of your life. Grace that will change your heart and make you ready for his appearing when he will usher you into utter contentment, joy, and fulfillment. You don't have that now, but you will have that. And when you look back, you will see how he used your place in life to mold you into the faithful servant that he has created. So be encouraged wherever you are. And if you feel the pull of discontentment or the lack of fulfillment, be honest with God and admit that to him. Do you think that the Lord Jesus was never discontented or frustrated? He understands that. He's a, he, he is a man who can understand and sympathize with your role in life. But let the sound doctrine of Titus 2 encourage you as you look to Paul's teaching here for the truth that God is redeeming you from all lawlessness and purifying you to be a people for his own possession and that he can even make you zealous for good works. He can actually make you desire to do the good works that he's called you to do. And even if the world sees those good works as pointless, God sees those good works as the actual means of saving and sanctifying his elect. Amen.